Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Providence Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac, Associate Advisor at Provident. Joining with me today is founder and CEO of Provident, Christopher Tan. Hi Chris. Hi Isaac, it's good to be back again. Yeah, thanks for joining us again uh, for our monthly BT article review. Mm. So to all our listeners, uh, our episode today is a review of Chris's latest BT article, Business Time article, which we do monthly on this podcast. I heard not a lot of people read it, uh, or rather not a lot of people listen to this podcast. So sad. Uh, I'm sure you'll get, uh, we'll have more and more listeners, especially okay. when we uh, integrate more and more video podcasts starting from next year. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I mean, I, I was the one who suggested doing this really because I thought that, you know, sometimes uh, when you write, right, and especially because you write for a column, uh, I'm, I've been given a limited number of words. Mm. Uh, the listeners may not know. Every month, I can only write about 1,200 words. And if I have to put a table there, I can I can only have lesser than 1,200 words. Right? So sometimes you have a lot of ideas. You want to put it in uh, into an article, but you may not be able to write everything. So I thought that you know if we can do something like that, it would be great la, for me to be able to share certain things that I haven't been able to put on uh, paper. La. Yeah, so at least we have this platform for you to elaborate a bit more on uh, your article. And, and to fully know, gripe about things that I cannot grab yeah. on the papers. <laughs> yeah, and also, you know, we, uh, in the past, you also have people writing in to you uh, via your email mm. regarding your article. So actually, you know, you can share this podcast to them as well, you know, when they want more information or, you know, more, a deeper dive into what you have written. Right, right. Yep, that's true. Okay, so you have been writing an article for the Business Times uh, every month for mm. many years now. I'd like to ask, when were you, <laughs> have you ever taken a break or will you be taking a break in December? Yeah, so I I think I've been writing for the Business Times since 2004. I'm very honoured, very privileged and grateful that uh, just one year after starting or one year after getting licensed, um, I got a chance to be able to contribute to the Business Times. And I wrote for a long time. I don't know how long, maybe 10 years. Then I took a break from the Business Times. And then I write uh, for the Straits Times. I wrote for the Straits Times on a monthly basis as well. And then I came back to the Business Times I think probably about two to three years ago. So all in, I think on average, I write at least once a month for the last 20 years. I've never taken a break. Uh, even if I have to go for a holiday, I will still have to write in advance. I think the only time, the only time I took a break was when my mother passed away. Yeah, that was uh, last year. And the wealth editor was kind enough to, to, to say, okay, why don't you take a break for this month? Okay, and then that was the only time I stopped. Uh, otherwise, I've, I've never taken a break. Mm, it can be quite imagine. stressful. Yeah, it's like writing an essay every month, having to hand in an essay. So yeah, far. and I mean, personal finance, there are only those few things, right? So sometimes it's quite tough like, on a monthly basis to think about, I mean, what else can I write? Are there anything new that I can actually write? Yeah, so I know before this recording, you asked me whether I'm taking a break in December. The answer is no. Uh, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to go for a family vacation. So I'm going to submit the article uh, early before I go. Right. Yeah, but I mean, so far from, from what I've seen for articles, actually it's quite, uh, still, it's still really interesting. I mean, even though you've written you. about uh, similar topics over the years, but the good thing is um, the finance industry is always evolving. So there's always yeah. something That's right. uh, new to write about. That's right. 
Okay, so uh, this month's article is titled How Suitable Are Investment-Linked Policies for Your Portfolio Strategy? So over the past two decades, we have not used ILPs, investment-linked policies, when building investment portfolios for our clients. Mm. This stance was from a period when online information about ILPs, or in fact anything, Mm. uh, were really scarce. I mean, platforms like YouTube didn't even exist back then. Mm. So what gave you the conviction to adopt this stance? I think the conviction doesn't just come from me, it came from the founders. It is the company stand, right? Because as you know, Isaac, our corporate purpose, right? Uh, you can find it on our website, but if you reduce it to its minimal, it's about helping our clients first make life decisions before financial decisions. And as a firm, we want to enable those financial decisions with honest, independent, and competent advice. So a lot of decisions that we take in the firm, we ask ourselves whether we are in alignment with that purpose. And if we honestly ask ourselves whether ILP is a suitable instrument to execute the investment strategy for our clients, uh, we have to honestly say it is not suitable. Um, If we ask ourselves if we competently assess the suitability of the product, uh, is it suitable? And again, we will say that it is not suitable. right? So that's why since day one, uh, from the founding of the firm, we have never used ILP. We have never advocated the use of uh, ILP whether for protection or whether for investments, uh, we have never done so. Right. And I think in the past, information was not as easily available. Um, as I mean, in terms of ILPs, right? Um, only the agents can really pull out the illustration for policies and, you know, for different amounts. So for you to adopt this stance, despite, you know, the public still being quite in the dark about mm. the ins and outs of ILPs is mm. um, quite commendable. Yeah, I think this is quite encouraging today. I mean, if you go to the social media space, if you go to some of those telegram chats, I think more and more consumers are becoming more aware that there are options, right? I, I don't want to say that uh, ILP is a totally toxic product or things like that. But I think consumers today, they are more aware of other better options, other more suitable options. Um, so that's that's quite encouraging because, yeah, I mean, back 20 years ago, when we were talking about ILPs, um, we often get criticism from the industry, you know, that uh, we're not saying something that they want to hear. Lah. But, well, like I said, we are just assessing the product based on the suitability for our client's portfolio. And we find that there is a better way of doing it and we don't have to use ILP. And that's why we yeah, we maintain that stance uh, since day one that we will not use ILP. Right. So in this article, you describe the differences between protection ILPs. I think that's the more traditional one. Yeah. And the newer iteration, wealth accumulation ILPs, or some may call it 101 ILPs. So it gets quite technical. Um, mm. So to all our listeners, I encourage you to read the article, which is linked in the description of this podcast, or listen to season two, episode twenty nine of this podcast, where we did a deep dive into ILPs. Right. So Chris, could you briefly sum up the differences between these two types of ILPs in terms of their broad characteristics? I think, as the name implies, protection based ILPs are ILPs that you buy for the purpose of protection. Right, just like a whole life plan. In fact, in the 90s when ILP first was developed, uh, or rather f- uh, when ILPs were first developed, uh, the main intention was to replace whole life. Right? So whole life plan as we all know it, 
if you pay $1 premium to the insurance company, the insurance company will split it. One portion of it, they will use it to pay for the cost of insurance, otherwise also known as mortality charge. right? And then the remaining of the premiums, they will then invest it into the life fund. right? And of course, I'm saying all this, assuming that there's no commissions and all that. Right? Obviously, there are commissions, distribution costs. But the $1 premium, after netting of all these costs, a portion of it will go to mortality charge, another portion will go to the life fund. Now for the whole life plan, the mortality charge is fixed at the time you enter the policy, at a point of inception, mm. right? So the mortality charge will not go up as you age. This is as compared to the ILPs. Right? The LP is a bit different. Yes, $1 you pay to the insurance company after netting off distribution costs and whatever other costs. The insurance company will again will take a portion of that and pay mortality. And the other portion, they were invested. But for the ILP, the mortality charge is charged based on your age of entry. Right, so for traditional ILPs, it, the mortality charge increases as you age. That's right. Yeah. So Isaac, for you, let's say today you are 30 years old, right? Let's say your mortality charge is 5 cents because you're very young, right? So 5 cents. As you age, when you become 40, 50, 60 years old, the mortality charge will go up. And because you're still paying that $1 premium to the ILP, lesser and lesser money will go into the investment portion. Now, there is a possibility that the mortality charge will go up so much that now the premium is no longer able to sustain that mortality charge even, and the policy will go into a lapse. Right? But of course, the insurance company they promise that as long as you do not draw out or you do not sell any units over the course of your policy, the insurance company will always guarantee you that sum assured. So that's the ILP. So it will lapse um, uh, if the cash value beats uh, right. to zero. Like that's right. So because along the way, if you sell some units, right, then mm -hmm. the cash value will go down. right? Now mm -hmm. the insurance company cannot assure you that you have enough cash values to sustain the sum assured. Right? Right. So that is why they cannot guarantee you if you sell some of your units. La. Now the other thing that's different between the protection-based ILP and the whole life plan is, I mentioned earlier for the whole life plan, there is a portion that the insurance company invested into the life fund. For the ILPs, the insurance company will invest it into unit trust. And this unit trust can be managed by the insurance company's own asset managers, own fund managers, or nowadays, quite common, a lot of the insurance company, they will outsource, they will find some other fund managers and park the money with them. So that's the, I would say the key differences between the protection-based uh, ILP and the whole life plan. Now, I know your question is really the difference between protection-based and wealth. La. So over time, protection-based ILPs started to lose its attractiveness. And the insurance companies started to go into product development. And now the newer ILPs are mostly what we call the wealth accumulation-based ILP. Meaning to say, most of the premiums are invested. The insurance portion of it is actually very, very low. Right? That is why it is called 101 ILPs because you are only getting 1% of the premium paid or 1% of the value of your investment, whichever is higher. You're getting only 1% of It means the mortality charge is almost, almost negligible. negligible yeah. right? And uh, a lot of these uh, wealth accumulation-based ILP, the insurance company even promised... Uh, 
the, their clients, their customers, that the full premium is invested. Right? So this is quite different from the protection base. Uh, the wealth accumulation base is really for people to invest their money. I see. So in your article, you uh, provided a very insightful table, I must say, because um, it compares the fees across ILPs from different insurers. Yeah. And for ILPs, it seems that the fees go down gradually over time. Right. So depending on when the policy is surrendered. Yeah. So for example, the average cost across all five wealth accumulation ILPs that you compared, if surrendered after, say, 15 years, mm. it's about 2.6% mm. per annum. After 20 years, the cost is about 2.3% per annum. Mm. After 25 years, it's about 2.1%. And after uh, 64 years, or I mean, you use these numbers to, to show like end of life, for example, it's about 1.8% per right. annum. So you added, you, you average it, is it? You average yes. the five insurance company. Yes, so yeah. I took the average of, uh, you know, at, at the surrender value, or rather the expense uh, ratio at 15 years, for example, if you were to surrender the policy and take the money, um, and I averaged across the five insurers. Five insurer. yeah. Okay, so I mean, this table, uh, before you ask that question, I need to clarify that it's not from me. I'm not so smart to go and work out this table. It's actually done by the solutions team. You know, we have a solutions team. Yeah. And earlier this year, we sort of like commissioned them to do a deep study on the ILPs. And so what, if, what the solutions team uh, did is that they tried to find out the cost of these ILPs across the different insurers. This cost is not very transparent, right? The, the only transparent thing is the total expense ratio of the unit trust that the ILPs use, right? So let me explain how the solutions team actually derived this number. So basically what they did is they took out all the benefit illustrations for the ILPs from this insurance company, right? And then they line by line, right, every year, they look at the uh, surrender value of this policy, right? So let's say if I look at the 11th year of this policy, at, at the end of the 11th year of this policy, they look at the surrender value of the past 11 years, they would be able to work out the internal rate of return or, for layman, the annualized return of the policy over the last 11 years, right? And based on the annualized return of this particular policy over the past 11 years, they look at the projected return that was used, okay, and the insurance company uses at a higher range, say 8%. Oh, 8%, yeah. Yeah, so let's say for the past 11 years, if the annualized return is 5%, let's just say, okay, and the projection use, the projection, the gross return use is 8%, it must mean that the cost is 3%. Right. Does it make sense? Yeah. Right? Sense. So if the cost is 3% and if we know the total expense ratio of the unit trust, let's say it is 1%, then we know that the cost that the insurance, the cost of the policy would be 2%. Right? So it may not be so easy to understand over a podcast uh, like this, uh, but just know that the cost is not so readily available, it's not so transparent. Uh, we have to actually uh, go through the BI, the benefit illustration of each of the insurer for the ILPs to work out this cost. As compared to traditional ILPs, would you say that the cost has come down um, as compared to the older ILPs? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have to give credit to the insurance companies that they have tried to make the ILPs more attractive. 
And uh, the cost has definitely come down. And a lot of it is because they give a welcome bonus uh, at the beginning uh, when you first put in your premium. Uh, I think I put down something like it can be as high as 200% of your first year premium. Right? So if you put $1,000, it's like times two, you know. Right? So you get a huge welcome bonus at the front. And then after the premium uh, lock-in period or the premium period, right? So let's say for the ILP, uh, you opted for an option that has got a 10-year premium payment period. Right? So the first 10 years, you are locked in. After the 10 years, the insurance company gives loyalty bonus. Right? So with the loyalty bonus and with the welcome bonus, uh, that, has lowered the, that, that has lowered the cost of the ILP. So I, I have to say, compared to the older ILP, uh, the newer ones definitely look better. Right, and that also explains uh, why if you hold the policy for longer, it gets lower. That's right, that's right. So if you're listening to this, I encourage you to go and take a look at the article because of what Isaac said, uh, has just said is true, right? But you will realize that uh, over the period of time, you know, as you continue this policy with the ILP, right, uh, the cost comes down. And why is this so? Is because of the loyalty bonus, right? Because after the premium payment period, uh, every year that you stay with the insurance company, they pay you a loyalty bonus. And this loyalty bonus over time will reduce the cost of the ILP. So what are your thoughts on this then? Should, you know, if let's say I have an ILP, does it mean that I should keep holding on to it? Uh, I mean, I mean I'm talking about the new uh, wealth accumulation ILPs. I mean, to begin with, if you are buying the newer ILPs, it's going to be very hard for you to surrender during the premium payment period, right? Because, right. Um, I mean, look, there's no free lunch. The insurance company is paying the agent who sold you the policy a commission. That's the distribution cost. They pay them upfront. They give you the welcome bonus up to 200%. If you're going to surrender during that period, they have to crawl back this cost, right? So if your policy is in the first 10 years or during the, 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 the premium payment period, I would say you can't, you can't surrender it, right? You have to hold on to it, right? But after the premium payment period, I think the reason why you would want to continue to hold on or the reason that will cause you to hold on to this policy is if the performance is good, mm. right? If the performance is no good, then I think it's a good time to look at other options. Okay, thanks for sharing, Chris. So the table also includes fees charged by financial advisory firms. So you split these firms by two characteristics. Mm. Uh, one that is firms that are using high-cost actively managed funds mm. and another which is firms that use low-cost non-forecasting funds. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I was trying to compare, right? Because um, the objective of the article is to decide whether now with the new ILPs improvements, can we consider using it to execute our investment strategy or for us at Provident to execute our client's investment portfolio, right? So uh, the first comparison I did was with uh, financial advisory firms who uh, use those uh, high-cost actively matched funds, as you have said. Right, and I included the platform fees that they have to pay, which is like a custodian fee that custodizes the client's asset, and then the ongoing advice fee that uh, these FAs will charge, lah. Right, and I mean it's quite interesting to see that actually, over time, the ILPs can be cheaper 
right? Because for the traditional FA, whenever they invest for the clients, there's no such thing as loyalty bonus, you know, and all that, right? So it's interesting. It's an interesting discovery that actually ILP can be cheaper than if you have invested with an FA that use a high-cost, uh, actively managed unit trust. So that was the first comparison. And then I compared with an FA that will use low-cost funds, like us, yeah. right? So like we will use ETFs, we'll use those funds that are non-forecasting, systematic investment managers like Dimensional, whereby the total expense ratio is very low, right? And from that comparison, we found out that actually ILPs, whilst the costs have come down, relative to using lower-cost instruments or relative to uh, uh, wealth advisory firms that use lower-cost instruments, actually is still expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So that was what I was trying to do with that table. Right, and also um, in terms of the fees that clients pay us, for example, it's not purely just for investment, right? I mean, they also, yeah. we also help them with other many other aspects of wealth yeah, management. Thanks for bringing up that point. I mean, this is one point that I, I didn't have the space la, to write it uh, on the business times. And also, I was very mindful not to focus too much on us uh, because then the, the that article on the business times will be deemed as not neutral, right? Yeah. But the truth is this. The truth is that for us, when we charge the ongoing advice fee, it is not the investment management fee. It is not portfolio management fee. We don't charge just for uh, portfolio management. We don't ju charge just for creating the asset allocation, monitoring the asset allocation, doing rebalancing, uh, instrument selection, monitoring the instruments. I mean, those things require a lot of work, yes, but our ongoing advice fee, it, don't just, the, it, it, it doesn't just cover that, right? It also covers a lot of financial planning work, ongoing financial planning, ongoing wealth planning, ongoing risk coaching work that we do because... The investment part is just one piece of the equation to help our clients reach their life goals, right? There is a need to do the wealth planning part and the financial planning part and the risk coaching part, which uh, takes up a lot of time and work uh, as well. So our ongoing advice fee covers both the wealth, the ongoing wealth planning and the ongoing portfolio management. And also cash flow management, estate planning. And also, you know, from yeah. time to time, we have clients that come back to us uh, ad hoc advice. Sometimes they get pitched products by other people. They come to us and ask us to give a neutral opinions. It's not always we say no. Sometimes we say, yeah, I think it's reasonable. Go ahead. Yeah, it's so sounding board that. to our clients as well. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they come back and say, okay, mortgage, right? So, you know, uh, we don't recommend mortgage product per se. We use a mortgage broker. But I mean, from time to time, when our clients come back, we may even uh, work out their mortgage needs and uh, sort of like give them advice on what uh, they can do uh, when it comes to taking up a home a home loan. Yeah, insurance planning as well. But I'll stop uh, because if I keep throwing out no end, uh, actually, things yeah, that no uh, end, no end. You know, we do for our clients, it will be a really long podcast. Okay, so let's go on to the last part of your article where you use the four pillars of our investment framework mm. to analyze ILPs. Mm. So could you briefly go through this process with our listeners? Yeah, so what I was trying to do is um, after comparing the cost uh, of the ILPs um, relative to the cost of traditional FAs and FAs that will use low-cost funds. Uh, the conclusion was that ILP is still expensive 
right? As compared to wealth advisory firms that use lower cost funds like ETFs and all that. But what I was really trying to communicate to the readers is that sometimes a decision goes beyond cost. I mean, I don't mind paying a lot if that investment delivers, right? Right. Right. So I was trying to use our investment philosophy. I was trying to share with the readers like, why? Why is it that we still don't use ILP despite the cost coming down, right? So our investment philosophy, firstly, uh, under pillar one is economic contribution. Now, under economic contribution, we believe that we should only invest in assets that has got an economic basis behind it. Because if there is no economic basis behind an asset class, we should not expect long-term returns. Right? I think we have done a, a few episodes on investment philosophy and uh, yeah. uh, the listeners can go and find them. Yeah, but So that's the first basis or the first pillar. Then we ask ourselves whether ILPs fit that first pillar. And the answer is yes. Because ILPs invest primarily in equities and bonds. There is an economic basis behind equities and bonds because you are investing into real companies and these companies produce income contributing to the economy. So there's an economic value. basis yeah. behind right, and create value. Right? So in that regard, uh, LPs are fine. Right? So pass. Second pillar. So second pillar is empirical observation. And in simple terms, it means that when we have decided on a certain asset class, we want to see whether there are evidence that supports this asset class, that there are evidence to say that this asset class really actually gives you that long-term returns. And if you are using instruments to invest into these asset classes like ETFs, funds and all that, we want to look at evidence to tell us whether these instruments from evidence will be able to give you the reliable stream of income. So in this regard, uh, we didn't feel that ILP was suitable because most of the time, ILPs actually invest in actively managed funds, mm -hmm. right? And I think we have talked about this many, many times. We have written many articles about it, that there are scores of evidence that show that uh, most actively managed funds do not beat the benchmark, do not beat the market. For those that do beat the market, they do not beat it consistently. Because it's just so difficult to try and guess where the markets are going and outguess the market. So in this regard, ILP is not suitable. Yeah, so but a lot of people will say that, oh, but the, the fund that I'm going to use, you know, has very good uh, past 10 years performance, past 15 years performance, you know, it has beaten the benchmark. Um, if I invest in this, I can more than make up for the cost of ILPs. Yeah. What do you think about that? But that may be true. That may be true. But as you have mentioned, those are past performances. Right. Going forward in the future, we are not certain whether they can repeat the performance. Now, they may. They may be able to repeat those performances, right? But at the point when we are making the decision, we are unsure. Right? And so for us at Provident, the clients that come to us, they cannot fail. A lot of them are planning for very serious life events like their retirement and all that. They cannot fail. So as long as our clients they are not greedy. The markets, uh, the returns from the markets are enough for them, sufficient for them. Then the rationale is then why take that risk to invest in something unsure going for? Yes, given that they have performed last 10 years, but the next 10 years, unsure. right? And so if the market is going to give me enough return, then 
there is no need to take that risk. Right? So again, if we come back to pillar two, we think that ILP is less suitable because it's actively managed, unsure. Now, pillar three. Pillar three is about implementation. And when it comes to implementation, we always believe in diversification because uh, diversification, it's some people call it the only way to get free returns, right? Because the only free lunch in investing. Yes, yeah. not, not free returns. Yeah, the only free yeah. lunch in investment, right? And it doesn't make sense actually for you to not diversify. Uh, so when it comes to implementation, uh, building global divers, uh, diversified portfolios uh, is very important for us. Uh, where ILPs are concerned, so the ILPs can be globally diversified. So that sounds fine. But the other, the other factor that we consider implementation is low cost, right? Because the lower the cost, it translates to returns, right? Um, and in this regard, ILP is not so suitable because why? We go back to the table, although the cost has come down, it is still more expensive than some of the instruments that we use. And so for pillar three, doesn't meet our requirement. Last pillar. Last pillar is practical consideration. Uh, one practical consideration is liquidity. I mean, yes, we are supposed to invest for the long term, but we don't want to lock our hands. Sometimes, clients may need to sell it. That's one. Secondly, we may need to sell that instrument because we want to rebalance it into another instrument, right? So yes, this fund manager may be performing very well, but if we need to change the manager, then I want that liquidity. For the ILP, it's a bit tough because... If I want to change the fund manager and the fund manager that I want to change to, they don't belong to the suite of products from the insurance company. And if it's within the first 10 years, I'm slapped with a huge penalty and we don't like that. So in terms of liquidity, we don't think that the ILP is suitable. Now, the other practical consideration is really platform. The ILP is very unique because you can only buy and sell the ILP through the insurance company. Whereas the rest of the investments that we use, like ETFs and all that, they are sitting on the brokerage, uh, brokerage platform, right? Yeah. So if I want to rebalance, if I want to sell some of the stuff at the ILP side to buy some of the stuff at the, the other platform side, can you see how difficult it is? Yeah, especially when we are trying to rebalance the client's portfolio to something that's more appropriate. So like, for example, if they start with a 60-40, equity markets go up, suddenly the allocation is 70-30, but our hands are tight, you know, in terms of trying to get the allocation back to 60-40. Yeah, and the 60% that we allocate to equity, some of the instrument could be on a brokerage platform and let's say we buy ILP, some will be on, on the insurance platform, right? And then now we try and rebalance, we try and sell the equities to buy some bonds or vice versa you can see how operationally inefficient it is because they're all sitting on different platforms. So in terms of practical consideration, again, we don't think that it is that suitable. So if we use our investment philosophy as a guide, going beyond cost, we don't think that even at this point, even though the LPs have improved, we don't think that the ILPs are suitable. Right, but there are many proponents of um, ILPs that argue mm. that the lack of liquidity is good because it forces you to or rather forces investors to stay invested for the long term and capture the returns of the market i mean they they say that it helps to uh, mitigate behavioral mistakes of investors what mm. do you think of that i mean 
Yes, whilst that is true, okay, I don't know whether I should say this, but I feel that it's like an excuse that we use uh, to explain away the disadvantage of an IOP, right? Because the lack of flexibility, the locked in, is actually not an advantage. It's actually a disadvantage. When this lock-in feature was designed, it was not meant to help the client stay invested. The main reason why there's a lock-in is because the insurance company, they have paid upfront to the distributors. They have given you the welcome bonus. They have to lock you in, right? Because they have, take, they have taken money out from your own pocket to pay someone else first, right? And so if you surrender early, then they have to crawl back. Lah. So the lock-in feature is not designed but yes, the side effect of that, yes, it forces investors to stay invested. That is true. But there are other better ways of helping investors stay invested without imposing such a huge cost. Right? And at Provident, you know, we do quite a bit of that. right? I mean, to begin with, if we do proper cash flow planning, investors may not have to liquidate their investment early. If we do uh, a proper... Uh, exercise of helping investors put their money in the correct asset location, the volatility of the portfolio will not be too much for the investors uh, to bear and they should not sell out of their investments too early. Uh, when the markets become very turbulent, uh, there's a lot of uh, risk coaching education that the advisors can do to help the investors stay invested. There are many, many, many ways to help the clients stay invested, to help the investors stay invested. There is no need to, you know, sort of like penalize or force the investor to stay invested by using actually a feature like this. Sometimes there's even a black swan event that happened to the client's life as well that, um, you know, that they really need access to this money and that's something that um, they will not yeah, be able yeah. to get without a penalty. No, absolutely, yeah. right. I mean, from an investment perspective, I know I have to stay invested for the long term, but if there's a life event that really re requires me to take out the money, uh, then, I mean, I heck what the investment philosophy say, I should take out the money, lah, right? But if I'm stuck with a product that locks me in for 10 years, um, I'm in trouble. There's one more thing I didn't write on the article, which is, I mean, there are a lot of people who say that nowadays are ILP, they give them access to funds that in the past were only available to the AIs, the accredited investor. And now with the ILPs, I can gain access to these very, very famous branded funds, give good performance and all that. Yes, all that is true. But what happens if this manager now underperform? What happens if the CIO of that fund house decide to jump ship and he's the one that's primarily responsible for the good performance? What if this fund house decided for whatever reason they don't want to work with the insurance company anymore? Right? Now, I have trouble, right? Because I bought this ILP because of these funds, but the fund managers are gone now. Right? And now I want to switch to something else, but I cannot find anything that I like within that uh, insurance suite of products, right? And then if I sell out from an insurance company, then I get penalized. Can you see the problem that this lock-in cost? All these are the costs, all for that one benefit of helping clients stay invested. I'm not so sure because right. there are other better ways. Yeah, and I think the stat is something like 90% uh, of active fund managers fail to beat the benchmark over the long term. But there's always this 10%, right? There's this 10% uh, that, that beats the... The, the benchmark and at any point in time in history if you just uh, let's say five years ago you google what is the best performing fund manager of the past 15 years you will always be able to find 
that fund manager, that fund. Yeah. But five years later, you can see that a lot of these funds, they don't appear anymore, you know, best performing uh, funds for the past 15 years. So that's the risk, right? Like you can find a fund, you can mm. very easily find a fund that is performing um, better than the benchmark for the past 15 years. Just a quick Google search yeah. um, will show you. But empirical evidence show that they tend to not uh, persist uh, or rather their outperformance uh, do not persist over time. And mm. you know, if they lock it in, if they bought this ILP due to these funds and they, um, I mean, statistically, if they start to underperform, you are stuck with it. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting you said 90% of these active funds do not beat the market, right? And so people spend so much effort and money trying to look for that 10%. But the 90% is easier to find, right? <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. If 90% of these active managers cannot beat the benchmark, right? Then why bother to find the 10? Find those that have beaten this 90% of the active manager is so easy to find. It's basically the market, mm. right? So why spend so much effort and money trying to find a small group of managers struggling to beat the benchmark when it's easier to find the benchmark? Yeah, <laughs> right? And spend lesser money and time. And as long as what the market delivers for you is enough for you, I think that is good enough. Lah. Yeah. Okay, so that's all for this week's episode. Thank you so much, Chris. I would say I hope you enjoy your one month break. I think I had this misconception that you had a break in December. No lah, we got one month break. I have to write in December. <laughs> but okay, I'll tell you that the December article will be easier. Okay, because uh, usually during December, I try, I try to write a reflective piece. Mm. So it's not so technical. Technical pieces are tough because you have to verify the numbers. Yeah. So I would say look out for the December piece. I think it's going to be a good piece, I hope. Yeah, I recall last year's one is very um you know it's not so technical, it's easier to read, uh and and you know it's more personal and I feel that it's um yeah, I really like enjoy it. Yeah, so I mean I I'll give a heads up. La. The December piece is written for all those people that sometimes you think that you are not good enough. Uh okay. I look forward to it. So to all our listeners, I hope you enjoyed our episode on Chris's business time article titled how suitable are investment-linked policies for your portfolio strategy? Once again, you can find this article in the description of this podcast. If you like this episode, follow our podcast and follow us on social media for similar contents. As always, thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. All analysis, views or opinions from interviews, recommendations and other information broadcasted, broadcasted or published herein are provided for general information purposes only. Information expressed does not take into account any specific situation, particular needs or objectives and should not be construed as specific advice or a recommendation. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal or tax professional before taking any action. Provident Limited does not accept any liability for any loss whatsoever arising from any of use of the information broadcasted, broadcasted or published herein. All contents and information contained herein may not be copied or reproduced in whole or in part by any means without prior written consent of Provident Limited.